Well, hello, everybody. Um, this is Franz Hochstrasser, CEO of Raise Green, and welcome to another episode of the Raise Green podcast. We explore the climate crisis through the minds of local leaders and global experts. Short, accessible conversations explore new ways of working together via personal stories about creating a healthy, just, and sustainable future. As economic disparity, environmental degradation, and social injustices continue emerging as defining issues of the 21st century, we need solutions that scale faster than the pace of the problems. These conversations ask how. So welcome to the Raise Green podcast. Today's guest, it is a distinct honor to have him on. It is Dr. Voltz, the one and only uh, David Roberts. David Roberts runs and writes the Voltz newsletter, which focuses on clean energy and politics. Before that, he covered the same subjects for five years at Vox, and before that, for 10 years at Grist. So, David, welcome to Raise Green. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, um, the doctor of takes, uh, <laughs> let's <laughs> kind of go back and start at the beginning. If you can perhaps uh, share with us, you know, this is a bit of a softball, but it's also been interpreted as uh, a tougher question, which is, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? Who am I is pretty easy to answer. I'm pretty much just another generic off-the-shelf white guy with a beard in middle age, <laughs> like all the other white guys with beards in middle age who are out punditizing on the internet. Nothing particular to distinguish me on that score. What I do is cover um, the intersection of climate change and clean energy and politics, primarily in the US. And I don't think there are a ton of other people doing that, although there are tons more now than there were uh, <laughs> when I started. Uh, and as for why I do it, this is, I mean, climate change is extremely important, uh, I think, for reasons I assume your listeners already understand. Indeed. <laughs> but, but I feel like the incredible progress and the incredible complexity of our attempt to shift from a society run on fossil fuels to a society that doesn't emit carbon emissions is in a way undercovered and underappreciated by people and not and not very well understood. So, and it's and it's really unlike um, climate change news, which tends to be pretty monochromatically depressing. Uh, there's actually lots of exciting things happening in the clean energy world and in clean energy politics and in the private sector and in technology and in policy. So there's just tons and tons going on in this space that, and, and I think um, people want to understand it. And I think people who are gripped by the seriousness of climate change appreciate <laughs> hearing that like good things are happening in response to it. So it's not all, it's not all depressing. Completely. Um, and the promise aside of the promise and the peril as former presidential candidate and Governor Jay Inslee often will refer to it, I think is, is such an important piece of communicating why we're still fighting in the face of this sometimes crippling climate crisis. Um, so your coverage, speaking for myself, has been instructive, um, inspiring. So just want to start by thanking you for doing what you do, because it is a service. Well, thank you. I fell into it completely by accident, but it has really worked out quite well. Like looking back, it looks like a master plan, even though I was back, <laughs> backing into all of it. 
Awesome. Do you, do you mind expanding on that just maybe momentarily? How did, how did you sure. fall into it? Sure, sure. I mean, I'll tell you the very, the very abbreviated version of the story. Uh, I was in grad school for philosophy for many years. <laughs> and then for various reasons, bailed out of that just before I got my PhD. So then I was in Seattle. I was like 27 or 28 years old, I think. I had no job skills, <laughs> no job uh, experience, nothing in particular to put on a resume other than, hey, I almost got a PhD in philosophy. So I was a little bit at sea at that point in my life and, you know, working like boring tech jobs. I did customer service for Amazon, stuff like that. Anyway, long story short, there's 20, 2004 and a friend says, hey, go check out Craigslist, this new thing where they post jobs. It's a new kind of job board. Literally the first time I'd ever heard of Craigslist. I went there and there was a little ad for an editorial assistant at a small web publication called Grist devoted to the environment. And at the time I didn't, I had no experience in journalism, obviously. And I, I mean, I, I would have considered myself a sort of, I guess, environmentalist in the way that kind of everyone says they are <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. it all seems, it all seems good and fine to me, but I wasn't particularly interested in it. I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not like a, hiker, camper, lover of the outdoors type. I didn't come to this through that. I came to this purely through the accident of happening to see that job opening and applying for it and getting it. So then I arrived at Grist, you know, I started doing kind of menial stuff, worked my way over to writing over time. So I had to kind of wrap my head around, you know, environmental stuff. Like, what do I care about within this? And then sort of finding climate change was really interesting. And then finding you know, clean energy is really interesting to me because, you know, especially when it comes to, well, both of them, I guess, but like one of the things I liked about philosophy is I like big systems. I like systems thinking. I like thinking about how different things hang together and what the patterns are, how they hold together in the, in the big picture. And climate change is kind of an area of news where that's useful. Like <laughs> lots of people, you know, you can tell them sort of the latest breaking news updates or what the latest report says, but they just don't have a mental frame for it. Like it, people genuinely don't know how to think about <laughs> climate change, like what kind of thing it is, what kind of crisis it is. And, and um, you know, in, in some sense that's true in clean energy too, because clean energy, switching clean energy out for fossil fuels touches literally every part of our life, every system we have on earth, social systems, economic systems, government, you know, policy systems touches all of it. So there's a, there's a, a, a need for, and an opening for kind of the systems thinking and pattern recognition and explanation, the kind of things that one does in academic philosophy. So weirdly, uh, I found my skills did carry over a little better than I thought they would. Such a sort of somewhat and no offense, but a meandering road to to arrive at. Uh... <laughs> it's so it's it, it's so utterly random, like it's just random at every at every stage. Like especially in two thousand four, two thousand five, two thousand six. You know these sort of early years when I was writing about this stuff. No one was writing about climate change. No one. Like you couldn't get the government to do anything about it. I remember coming into work frequently and just thinking, like, what on earth am I going to write about today? There's nothing happening. And no. now, of course, you know, it's moved into the center of political discourse. The whole world's mobilizing. There's all this stuff happening. And here I am, like, 
well-placed because I got in early, which is like, like I said, like, looks like an amazing bit of prescience and, and planning, but in fact, it was completely completely random. I mean, like you said, it's so refreshing over the last couple of years, even just 18 months to see how much more attention is being paid to the climate crisis, to the clean energy transition. I mean, it's, it's really night and day from even when I started working on these issues, which was back in 2009. So I can't imagine that the doldrums of 2004 were. <laughs> it was grim. It was grim, yeah. friend. We couldn't. Uh, and back then also, like in 2004, it wasn't just climate change. Back then, you know, solar was just stratospherically expensive <laughs> and theoretical. And people were talking, you know, the sort of conventional wisdom in the field was that coal was going to dominate the electricity system through like 2070. That was kind of the standard IEA line on these things. So the whole idea, you know, the, the pace of progress that's going on right now, it's, it's, it's easy to lose sight of it because, you know, whenever you're in the middle of it, all you can think about is, I wish it was more and faster, but like the pace of progress yeah. happening right now is, was unthinkable, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, much less 15 years ago. The idea that like, the idea that I would be able to someday say, honestly, renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy available to humans. It's just would have sounded like absolute uh, fairy tale. Right. Yeah. And yet it, and yet it's true. Um, and I, I wanted to also just pick up on the note you made about systems thinking, you know, when Matt and I uh, were working together in grad school about four years ago, one of our big inspirations for Raise Green was uh, Danella Meadows book, Thinking in Systems. Mm. It's a critical piece, I think, of, of coming up with uh, climate solutions to address the crisis we've got. Um, what do you see now as the largest hurdles in clean energy adoption, uh, primarily solar across the U.S.? And is there anything that the average person uh, can be doing to help reduce this barrier? I think this has been true for a while, but it's definitely true now. The biggest barrier is just politics. The biggest barrier is, um, you know, the one metaphor I interviewed a, an analyst uh, a couple of weeks ago that offered this metaphor. He's like, we finally got the boulder up the hill and we've crested the top and it's starting to roll down the other side now. <laughs> the boulder being sort of like renewable energy development and the energy transition. It's underway now. It's got a momentum of its own now. It's happening. It's inevitable on some time scale. Now the boulder's rolling down the hill. So now the way he put it is now what we need to do instead of pushing is clearing obstacles out of its path and so that it can roll faster. And those obstacles tend to be obsolete laws and regulations that were designed for a fossil fueled world. And of course, you know, the fossil fuel incumbents are still extremely powerful and have you know an extreme level of influence on almost every level of government everywhere. So it's always a fight to make those reforms. But that's, I mean, the main barrier now. And and I would say more specifically, if you're if you're looking just at the U.S. context, the barrier to the spread of rooftop solar, distributed solar, is what's called soft costs. In other words, like the the equipment itself 
the panels themselves have gotten super dirt cheap. So all, you know, all the remaining uh, cost in the U.S. is soft cost, which is getting permits, customer acquisition, you know, all the sort of regulatory uh, hoops you have to go through, all that kind of stuff. So like, by contrast, in Australia, rooftop solar is dirt, dirt cheap. They have reduced all those soft costs. And it is now cheaper energy from rooftop solar in Australia is cheaper than what we pay just to transmit power from a power plant to our homes. In other words, even if we could generate power for free at power plants, just the cost of transmitting it to the home would be higher than the base cost of rooftop solar in Australia, not in the US because we still have all these stupid laws and regulations at every level in the way. So eliminating those soft costs is the biggest barrier to rooftop solar. The biggest barrier to utility scale solar, big solar, is these interconnection problems. There's these queues with renewable energy developers waiting to have a chance to connect to the grid. And it just takes forever. The process by which it happened takes forever. And we have insufficient transmission infrastructure in a lot of cases to handle the new solar. So that is a matter of A, building a bunch of transmission and B, reforming that process of interconnection so that it's not so painfully slow. Those are kind of the, the big proximate barriers to solar. What average people can do, there's a bunch of stuff. They could get solar panels for their house. <laughs> I mean, that's, right. absolutely, that's absolutely something normal people can do. I mean, everybody, if you agree with me that the way to decarbonize the U.S. is to electrify everything, as I say very frequently, and electrified buildings are part of infrastructure, right? Because they're communicating with the grid and in some sense coordinating with the larger grid, balancing their loads um, to, to serve the grid well. That means every individual with a building, <laughs> a home or a building they own, has their hands on infrastructure and can help build infrastructure. So that's the way to view it, I think. It's not just power for your own home. It's completing your little piece of the national infrastructure that will be necessary to run things cleanly. So that's the first thing. The second thing is everyone is in a community and in a political jurisdiction and can advocate for better policy. Um, you know, get, get involved, write your city council, start at the city level, start at the neighborhood level. You know, there are like neighborhood compacts. You can do this. You can do community solar with your neighbors you know, work at the, at the state level, go get in touch with your public utility commission. Like these public utility commissions have their hands on enormous amount of power over this stuff. And no one, they're so boring that no one pays attention to what they do. And very few people go to those meetings and express opinions to them. So, which means mm -hmm. that like, if you and five-year buddies went to a PUC meeting, you'd probably dominate it. And, uh, and it would have a, you know, a real chance to communicate yourself to the to the PC, state legislators, national legislators, all that. Also, finally, the final piece I would say is the private sector, and I've just been writing about this recently, the private sector is has developed into a really big player in pushing renewables and clean energy forward in the US through voluntary 
procurement, you know, going out and buying renewable energy to sort of offset your own consumption, um, that's turned into a pretty big thing. And it's developing too now that people are going beyond just sort of bulk energy purchases to kind of trying to match their consumption on a 24-7 basis, sort of match renewable energy generation to their consumption on an hour-by-hour -hour basis. That's a cool new trend. Point being, like, these companies are doing this because they're very, I mean, uh, you know, part of it is like sincere. The engineers who work there care about climate change and they love solving problems and they're dug in on this, but also they respond to public opinion. So, you know, express yourself as a consumer by supporting businesses who are doing these kind of things, communicating to businesses who aren't that you would like to see them do it, right. you know, deploy your ability to shape corporate behavior because corporate behavior has somewhat surprisingly to me turned out to be a really big and powerful and important force in the U.S. So, you know, the it's it's every individual is in the midst of a part of several different levels of systems. Your home is a system. Your home power is a system. Your your sort of social network is a system, the government under which you uh, uh, operate is a system, like just get involved in mm -hmm. changing every one of those systems, you know, it, 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 whichever way um, best serves your inclinations and talents. Yeah, this concept of party at the PUC, uh, <laughs> bring your buddies yes, down and-, yes. and Who could say no? Queue up behind the mic and <laughs> it's a fun image, but it actually, I think, you know, is so spot on. It's really because of the fragmented nature of the, you know, regulatory structure on energy in the U.S. Having a fifty-state approach to tackling yes, the policy it's fifty. Side it's is, fifty different battles. <laughs> yeah, and and all battles that need more people on, <laughs> on the clean energy side. I also want to pick up on the note that you you made there about private players and and matching consumption. To me, the holy grail kind of is that you can pay yourself for your own clean energy effectively and that it becomes a, a kind of virtuous cycle um, where, and, and that's a, kind of the vision of Raise Green is to have people on the ownership side of community scale clean energy projects. And then also on the consumption side, whether it's community solar or direct rooftop uh, solar. So I think that's a, that's a powerful vision. Two more things to pick up because you had a, a powerful response there that I want to kind of respond to as well, which is, I love this image of, uh, you know, puzzle pieces of the grid kind of coming together and, mm -hmm. and every individual homeowner and business and, you know, nonprofit or church or what have you, you know, plugging in their, their piece of the puzzle and saying, okay, you know, it, it's, it's completed uh, on this end. And now over to you, you know, to mm -hmm. the neighbors. Lots of great ways for individuals to get involved. And then to your your first metaphor, which is, you know, how we're doing kind of on the larger challenge of rolling this boulder over the crest of the hill and starting to get it moving down on the, the heels of Glasgow, uh, COP26, the 26th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention. We heard a lot from your Twitter feed as well as your blog. Um, you're quite vocal about thoughts on the conference, and certainly there's a lot in the way, including you know 500 
of the delegates being from fossil fuel companies. Uh, <laughs> they curious. are paying close attention to this whole process. No doubt. And yeah, I, you know, I'm curious, what are some of the things you feel like listeners really need to take away from uh, the COP result this year? Yeah, it's, these COPs are a little weird. <laughs> they, they've gotten a little weird because they're sort of serving two functions. Now there's kind of two things going on. On one side is just kind of the business of the actual COP itself, the business of the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or whatever it's called, the countries themselves hashing out this agreement. So on that score, you know, the Paris Agreement that um, Obama helped broker, that's sort of the model, the template now, and, and everything that's going on in COPs these days mostly has to do with hashing out the details and, and mechanisms that were agreed to as part of the Paris Agreement. And so, you know, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, the sort of big shift that led to the Paris Agreement is, you know, countries sort of realize like, hey, we've been at this for like 20 or 30 years and have gotten nowhere. <laughs> we've been pursuing for 20 or 30 years a, a binding agreement right that would have because one of the rules of the of the UNFCCC is that all um, major votes have to be unanimous right so this so you have to get 192 or whatever countries to agree to whatever agreement you have right and, consensus and, yes and what lots a process of, and lots of them don't want a binding agreement that has actual consequences if you don't reach it and certainly like they they never could hash out a binding agreement that everyone could agree to. And so they just were like treading water and wasting time for decades on end. So finally, the sort of insight was, okay, international government, UNFCC has no enforcement powers. There's no global police. There's no global law, really. International law even is a little bit of a, you know, in some senses, a little bit of a polite fiction. So we can't force people to do anything. We can't, we're not gonna be able to come up with a binding agreement. So instead, let's do this. Let's just have every country say what they're willing to do say where they are, where their emissions are, what the trajectory they're on, and what they're willing to commit to voluntarily. And then we'll just record those voluntary commitments, put them up publicly so that everyone sees them. And then every few years, we'll come back and we'll check in on how everyone's doing. <laughs> and we'll ask everyone to, you know, sort of steadily over time, up their commitment as they see others committing as they reach their early commitments, they gain confidence, they raise their ambitions. So the whole apparatus is a voluntary framework, basically. Like you can't, no, the Paris Agreement can't make you do anything. If you mm -hmm. commit to something and don't achieve it, there's no fine or penalty. There's no, there's no way to be punished. The only sort of punishment, insofar as there is any, is, is peer pressure, is transparency. Like countries don't want to go out in public and make big commitments and then fail to reach them. <laughs> like it's, it's embarrassing. So the whole thing is kind of premised on the power of kind of peer pressure and transparency as opposed to trying to find some binding mechanism. So, so all, all of the cops these days are just sort of hashing out the details of that. Like how often do countries have to report you know, their data? How often do they have to reassess their ambitions and re-report their ambitions? And a lot of that is, you know, like, who's going to pay into the fund that's devoted to helping poorer countries and how much and when, you know, a lot of that stuff is 
a super technical and b really just hashing out the details of the paris agreement and trying to push it along and on that score cop 26 was fine you know they're making kind of progress on that on that stuff not fast not as fast as they need to the the ambition still doesn't reflect what would be needed to actually achieve the target everybody says they want right 1.5 degrees but you know since the process started 10 years ago five degrees of warming celsius five degrees warming was a real possibility it was was entirely within the uh uh, realm of outcomes and that of course you know like anywhere four to six degrees would be you know i don't want to say it would wipe humanity out but that's mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's you know that's the level you're talking about at that point it's like real questions about the survival or, or prospering of the species itself progress made since then has brought the sort of projected range of warming down and now we're we're now we seem to be headed for something like 2.7 right? And now, to be clear, 2.7 would be super bad. (laughs) It would still be bad, but no longer species-threatening bad. And there's every reason to think if people continue upping these pledges and continue um, trying to meet them and continue raising their ambitions and action accelerates, that will bring down the expected amount of warming. You know, if everybody everybody meets the pledges that are on the table now, I think it's down to like 2.1. You know, so we have already more or less foreclosed the worst possibilities on climate change. You know, like, I don't, I don't feel like that gets enough press. Like right. the true, true apocalypse was a real possibility not that long ago. And we took action and have sort of like shaved off those tail end, truly catastrophic possibilities. And that's, you know, like good for us. So the, the UN process is like, it's the same with every cop. It's like, progress was made it's not fast enough it's not enough but it was progress so like that's the cop itself that's the i think the attitude to take is like i don't think it's super important for your average civilian to really track the details of the of these un technical negotiations is it five-year cycles or one-year cycles? yeah yeah it's just it's moving along and as long as it's moving along that's good of course like the other cop (laughs) it's become an opportunity is become like a, like I put it on the site is it's become a, like a giant climate Woodstock, like a giant festival. So that everyone, <laughs> a good description. everyone in the world who cares about climate change or is doing something about it or wants to do something about it, or has anything to announce any new initiative to announce or new, new accomplishments to announce anyone who has any news or, or anything related to climate change or any desires or, or protesters, climate protesters, everyone descends on the cop because that's when people are paying attention to, to, to climate change. Like the, the ground is thick with journalists at these things. So if yeah. you want some attention for your climate thing, you go there. Myself and, included. Yes, everyone. I will say I have never been to a cop and have no desire ever to go to one, but oh, <laughs> man. To, to each his own. It's uh, so much fun. Uh, that's not the average feedback I hear when people <laughs> return from cops. I'll just say. I think I'm, uh, I'm a, a glutton for work, though. A glutton for standing I, in lines, waiting to get into large conference <laughs> conference arenas. Yeah, something like that. I, I certainly enjoyed them as as part of the the U.S. team. I mean, they were stressful as heck, and you know, yes. 
not getting much sleep but well because it's this festival because it's this kind of like one time in a in a several year period that everyone is paying attention to climate change it just has become invested with enormous amounts of feeling and hope and you know and like anger and like everyone's feelings about climate change just become get uncorked during this event and flow out and so outside of that official cop stuff there's this you know all this stuff going on protests and this and that but you know this is where sort of these voluntary multilateral agreements among countries are announced so like the global methane pledge it's a really big deal it's a good deal brokered by biden over 100 countries pledging to reduce methane leaks by 30 percent by 2030 that's a big deal it's not officially part of the cop it's not in a unfccc thing but you know it's like that's the good time to announce it and there are several other sort of treaties and efforts like that and all sorts of like private sector efforts all these announcements coming out which go to show i think that civil society and the private sector and governments really like people are super super engaged on this now there's just a lot going on so i think the level of progress in the cop itself is in some sense a trailing indicator and i think if you look at all the other non-cop stuff that happens around it you get a little bit better glimpse of the near future which is just lots of people engaged lots of stuff going on lots of smart people working on this now and i think that will you know over time translate into faster process within cop i'm sort of a a a mainstreaming almost of of attention and focus i mean it's fully Uh, mainstream now like like yeah google and microsoft you know the major world governments like it's 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 definitely on the main menu now Absolutely. Yeah, we, we got to attend the Sustainable Innovation Forum, which was one of these sort of Woodstock style side festivals, as, <laughs> as well as the Investment Cop. And it's, I mean, it's fully corporate at this point where yeah. you know, you've got JP Morgan up there on the stage saying, even in the face of difficult questions, that they're actually not going to stop investing in fossil fuel infrastructure, but many others with much more hopeful commitments and goals science-based targets and yeah but how i mean i look at like i look at these people sort of like well fossil fuels aren't quite over yet but you know with something as big as fossil fuels it looks big it looks like it would take forever to fight back or push it back but really there are kind of tipping points and like once it becomes true in the popular conception and the popular imagination that fossil fuels are over you're going to start seeing cascading changes and so i think these you know these companies that are like well there's still a little bit left to squeeze out of this (laughs) you know like there's still a little bit left i think that's just going to start fading really really quick like i think it's going to fade faster than people than people think i mean things are uh, have changed so much even from just a couple of years ago i mean the fact that like major banks you know this gets to the climate risk thing which which you know activists and advocates have been beat, pounding on for for years and is really getting traction now which is to say like if you put a bunch of investment in fossil in carbon intensive projects it's very risky not just because climate change itself is going to impose risks on your business through you know terrible weather and floods and all that kind of stuff but you you face the risk of climate policy like clearly things are moving 
clearly countries are taking this seriously. Policies are getting passed all over the place. If you're the last one stuck holding all these carbon intensive investments, you know, they're going to be stranded. They're going to be worthless at some point. So there's an enormous amount of risk in the fossil fuel business. And that message, I think, has finally started to reach bankers, you know, like the big money, the money people have have heard this, like JP Morgan, you know, like they've heard this and they started internalizing it. And I think once that becomes conventional wisdom, you're going to see like really quick cascading changes coming out of that. Absolutely. Yeah. That transitional risk of policies coming forward, even in the U.S. with the promise from the Treasury Department to put forward climate-related risk disclosure requirements in financial yeah. filings. Yeah. I mean, it's- and once it's public, once that risk is like not just advocate hand-waving, but like a number on a spreadsheet, then changes. <laughs> start right uh, how excel runs the world <laughs> exactly if you if you look behind the curtain it's all a giant spreadsheet so, so much momentum lots to be hopeful for i think your your headline in the blog i, I read from you was don't be too bummed about the outcome <laughs> and um so i appreciate you going deep on that one so l- last question here and Uh, I think this is kind of turning the tables on you a little bit because so many folks uh, in the movement have grown accustomed to following, reading, listening to uh, your journalism and and your masterful takes. Who do you currently kind of read and listen to in the climate and clean energy space? And what are some of the next books or articles or podcasts that you like to listen to? You know, I was thinking about this actually, and I don't have a great answer because, I mean, it'd be one thing to recommend to people. Here's how I would phrase it. There is a level of sort of raw information, and then there's kind of the think tank or expert level of what does this information mean, or like gathering the information and putting it all in one place in a way that's understandable. And then there's the sort of interpretive level of media, which is like, what's going on in these other areas (laughs) that sort of translate for people. So all of this is by way of saying, I've been in this game so long that I no longer really read the interpretive level much because I just find that (laughs) I just find that like most of it is saying things that I already know or reinforcing things that I already know or like sharing background that I already understand, which is totally, totally fine. That's good that people are doing that, but it's just like, I don't need the handholding anymore. I don't need the contextualizing anymore. Like I got it. So I mostly read that second level. I mostly read like the original reports coming out of think tanks and, and, you know, like the, yeah. Just today, FERC and NERC released a report on the Texas freeze from February. What caused that? And like, there you go. That's at, at a this hot point, right there. At this point, I'm not going to read an article about it. I'm just going to go read it or read enough of it to sort of get a sense of, of what's going on, which is all of which is to say I'm not very much help in, in guiding people <laughs> in, well, in this because I don't consume hardly any of that anymore. But I will say, like, it, it seems to me that like there's more than ever like just for example i'm the editor at large at canary media which is the a new site that was started about just the clean energy transition and it's fantastic (laughs) i mean it's amazing 
it's uh, it's uh, it's all the stuff that like only I used to cover. So you know, like trends and in, in clean energy and clean energy policy and all this kind of stuff. There's just like people on it now. So there's tons to find. You don't have to look very very hard to find helpful people who can guide you through the thicket. But I'm sort of like one of those people, which means I'm not really like reading the other ones of those people. <laughs> If that makes yeah. sense. Oh, absolutely. I hear you loud and clear. And and the the work you're doing, you know, to to sift through the those FERC and NERC reports and the you know combing of uh, you know CBO scores uh, <laughs> on the Build Back Better Act and those sorts of things uh, do do a great deal of service, as I mentioned at the beginning. You know, to to those of us. Uh, looking to to find the signal and in, in all of the the noise and there's well, more and th more this is why uh, i like noise. the this is why i like the newsletter model that i've that i've shifted to now there's no institutions involved you know that that would shape what i do or restrict what i do there's no advertisers involved there's no mediator there's no mediation it's just literally I perform a service, which is going and reading <laughs> boring reports and telling you what they say in plain language, and people pay me directly insofar as they find that service valuable. It's like the most honest way of making a living, I think, that is available in the media landscape today, and I'm really glad I've, I've ended up here. I, for one, am glad you've wound up there as well, and for lack of a, a separate recommendation, let me make one, which is to check out Canary Media, um, as well as subscribing to Dr. Volz's newsletter. Yes, which um, is so. at volz.wtf, volts by the way. That's the web address. For uh, winning the future, right? <laughs> Something like that. Fabulous. Well, Dr. Volz, um, David, it's, it's fantastic to have you on. I really appreciate you taking some time with us, and I know our listeners will, uh, will be enthralled with uh, not just how you got into the business, but your most recent takes on COP and uh, barriers to clean energy adoption in the US. Um, so many thanks uh, and uh, have, a, have a wonderful afternoon. Awesome, thanks for having me.